Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Isn't It Lovely podcast, the podcast where we seek to shine the light on all that is lovely. I am Tracy. And I am Rachel. And today, Tracy and I got to talk with Dr. Jody Carrington, renowned psychologist and best-selling author and speaker. Tracy and I had the pleasure of learning from her about what she calls a reconnection revolution, what it means to be seen, and why regulating our emotions is one of the most important things we can do not only for ourselves, but also for the kids in our lives. We talked about her book that's out, Feeling Seen, Reconnecting in a Disconnected World. And we also talked about her chart-topping podcast, Everyone Comes from Somewhere. You guys, we laughed and cried on this episode and you will tangibly feel her passion and energy. On that note, we did want to give a heads up if there are little ears around that this episode does contain quite a bit of some colorful language. We also wanted to say thank you so much to Flyboy Donuts for sponsoring this episode. Flyboy is genuinely one of our favorite local owned family businesses for treats of all ages and special events. You can check them out at one of their four locations and on flyboydonuts.com. And please stay tuned for an exclusive offer to our listeners in the ad break. We read your book and we absolutely loved it. And we listened to your podcast. And when we were reading your book, what I was really struck by is the term when you say, um, I want to get this right, so I'm reading it, um, a reconnection revolution. I love how you word that. And actually, we were talking about Marty. She came up with the term revolution, right? You say that in the book, which I yeah. love. Um, so theoretically, with technology, we are so connected, but we're actually not. Can you talk about what you mean when you say this revolution of reconnection? Yeah, I think I love that question. I think that the biggest issue for me these days is really the idea around a loneliness epidemic. So Vivek Murphy, who is your Surgeon General, started to talk about a loneliness epidemic uh, probably about six months ago. And I love that conversation because post-pandemic and even prior to the pandemic, we talked a lot about a mental health crisis. So as a psychologist for the last 20 years, I think that it has been interesting. I only, my favorite thing is to work with people who have struggled with trauma and who have had the most difficult times regulating emotion, have come from places where they've been marginalized or experienced things that wouldn't allow them the privilege of emotional regulation. And the definition of emotional regulation is how not to lose your friggin' mind. It is the greatest gift you can give your children, how to stay calm in times of distress. But you have had to have somebody give that to you. You can't give away something you've never received. And in this age of loneliness, of disconnection, one of the biggest prices we will pay as a human race is losing our ability to regulate emotion with each other. Be kind in times of distress. We will never obliterate distress on this planet. Uh, mental health issues, loss, grief, shame, trauma, all of those things, it is a futile effort to get rid of those things. The biggest intervention of all time will be to create the people who are present enough to do the walking, the emotional regulation during times of crisis and war and famine and racism and disconnect and all of those things, poverty, all of those things. Huh? Those of us in a position of privilege, which I 150,000% see myself as, I'm white, straight, able-bodied, uh, and I started on third base. And I've been surrounded by people who also are, for the most part, emotionally regulated, which means my biggest job is to give that to my children. My biggest job is to create a community where they can, people can find places to, to learn how to do that in an effort to know 
that we will be required to give this away more than ever in the generations that follow us. As we watch, you know, the war unfold in Gaza and Israel and uh, Russia and the Ukraine and all of these things, I truly believe in North America, if we do our ever best to love the people that we have in our own homes and give them the ability to regulate emotion, we need to create a sense of the next generation who can do this holy work of regulating emotion. And it it often reminds me of this quote by a dead guy named Ram Das, and I think I talked about it in Feeling Scene, but it's over my shoulder because it's my favorite collection of words in the English language. He said, we are all just here walking each other home. And it is maybe the most profound statement in our in my lifetime that because it, it makes sense to me as a wife and as a mom and as a psychologist and as a philanthropist, as a um, uh, a woman trying to create a new set of rules for my daughter and for my sons to understand, and, you know, to 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 create a sense of, you know, we've never been so unclear about roles. Um, we've never had this much freedom, but our roles as women and uh, how we identify in this world has never been so scary for so many people. And when we have the opportunity to pull away, the loneliness factor is just exponentially greater. And so our job, when we think about this as a revolutionary effort to stay reconnected, um, that word just felt so right because the hardest thing we will ever do is look into the eyes of the people we love but it is the only thing we will never automate, the need for connection. That is so extraordinary. And I love that even as you were acknowledging how unclear so many things are, that is such a beautiful, clear sense of purpose and personal mission statement. And mm. that is intensely inspiring. I wanted to go back to something that you were saying about trauma. And Tracy had actually sent me this weekend one of your podcast episodes that was centered around trauma. So we're going to link to all this in the show notes because we want everybody to listen. It's so phenomenal. But you talk about in that podcast that trauma is not necessarily just something that that happens to you, the inciting event, but it's what happens inside of you as the result of that event. Would you be willing to expand further on that concept for us? Oh, yeah. I love So that, uh, I think that is based largely on Dr. Peter Levine has done a lot of work in this way. Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, psychiatrists that have really revolutionized the way of thinking about not the medical model of trauma, but really the psychological injury that is trauma. Because based on our stories, it's really how we interpret the world around us. Based on how, people say this to me all the time as psychologists, does it always come back to your childhood? Yes! Because that is where we learned the script of how we are treated as human beings and how people respond to us and can they be trusted and will the people that tell you that they won't hurt you actually hurt you and what does that look like and how do you navigate that and what happens when your parents not if screw up and what happens when blah, 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 blah. And so we get a script on what to expect in this world and from this world, particularly from people, because the interesting thing about trauma for me is that the only way that we heal uh in relationship, the only way we heal is in relationship with another human being. But often our biggest traumas are caused at the hands of those very beings, of other humans. And when we think about the experience of, you know, trauma, my experience would dictate how I'm going to encode an experience. So just a really, you know, little example of this is like, let's say you and I are out walking frolicking in South Dakota are, we're regulated and we're emotionally regulated. We're laughing and we're talking and we're doing all kinds of things. So I know that we're calm in our bodies because you can't laugh and talk and have snacks if you're emotionally dysregulated. So that's how I know that's my clue that we're kind of regulated in this moment. 
And your history is that you love dogs. You're a massive fan of dogs. You have three. You are very comfortable around dogs. You've often considered being a vet or a, a dog breeder. You just love this. I, me, on the other hand, I hate dogs. Uh, I was bit when I was two. My babysitter made me watch Cujo when I was six and scared the shit out of me. And I, I don't, I, I just always think that dogs are like, look out, they're bad. So we're out frolicking, we're regulated, and out of the bushes jumps a dog, okay, a Rottweiler. Now, you see that, that dog first, and what do you, how do you respond? You are regulated. You're so excited. You're going to call this thing a Rotty. You're like, oh, look at the Yeah? How does the dog respond to you? Oh, my gosh. Everybody's frolicking. Me. How does the dog respond to me, right? It eats me. So same dog, same sights and smells and time of day. We are in the same physical space. But we are encode based on our stories, encode going to encode that experience very differently. Yeah. So it becomes very difficult to identify, you know, why why this person, you know, is resilient or this person isn't, or this person encoded this in terror can handle this. Really understanding the context in which we come into this world is so helpful. It is the prerequisite for empathy. It doesn't excuse behavior, but it certainly helps me understand people so much more. And the more disconnected we become, the harder it is to know the context of other people. And I think when we start to talk about the ability to survive experiences that we encode in terror, and I, I do a lot of work with police officers, and um, the only job of a police officer is to attend scenes where somebody is distressed, where there is some sort of emotional regulation. Very few times do police officers get called when shit's going well. You know, people aren't like, ah, it's going well, I mean, come on, come on for some snacks, fellas. Generally, <clears throat> there is a, oh my gosh, it's domestic violence. There's an MBA, something has happened. So there's a sense that you're going to encode it in terror. That is the definition of trauma, encoding something in terror. And it's very functional because when I come upon something that is going to maybe be a threat to me or somebody else, I want to encode it in terror. I, ah! I want to be in a space where I can fight, flight, or freeze. Huh? The issue mostly isn't that experience, is what happens after it that determines how your body will process it. If I come back to a family that's regulated, that's safe, that has snacks prepared for me, reminds me that I'm doing holy work, that it's really difficult. Well, I saw this baby and now my heart is broken. Okay, okay. You were there for this family when nobody else could be. And now you're here, honey, and you're safe. Our babies are safe. We serve this community because we can do this holy work. Okay. So you reintegrate that experience, you calm your body, and you can continue to serve. You can imagine if you pile four or five or six of those on a day, your place of work is not as many uh, organizations are in the world of law enforcement or um, first responders. It's fine. You're good. You got it. It's tough. Be a man. Don't talk about it. We don't show emotion. You're good. You come home and there's no place to put that because, of course, your people don't want you to be sad. You don't want to vicariously traumatize your people. So you can imagine that it's not necessarily the experiences that we have. It's what we do with it that matters. Because if I don't process that emotion, I stay stuck in that place. So then all of a sudden, things start to bother me, like dogs, Christmas lights, or things that start the smell of gasoline, the things that I never got to put back into place necessarily, or even just a little bit, and they start to become triggers. And so we often talk about this place of, of triggers. Why do things, certain things bother you? You know, the fighting or the smell of 
tacos or Christmas lights. Um, oftentimes, there's a bit of a clue that there's something about that experience because Christmas lights can't hurt you. The smell of gasoline uh, can't fight you. Even necessarily a, a dog walking down the street um, is no physical threat to you, but your body believes it is given the, your story. And so a little bit about relationship and connection and for, for sure this world of psychology um, is so such a passion of mine because we rarely can do this stuff alone because we're just walking each other home. And if we're surrounded by some walkers who helps us put our shit back together and regulate emotion, it either it's a best friend or it's a therapist or it's a partner that can say, okay, 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 okay. Our baby's going to be okay, right? Bullying is a part of grade seven. Look at my eyes. Okay, baby doll, we're going to survive this. Okay. And you see, when we have each other to navigate those things, our job as big people is to walk them through it. Okay. Our baby's going to survive because they get home to land up when he's crying and he's upset. I know. Yep. You can't obliterate bullying with pink shirts. You need to obliterate bullying by being connected as a parental unity, uh, as a unit, as a system, as connecting to teachers and coaches and basketball coaches and soccer coaches and bus drivers and being like, let's talk to this baby again about how we speak to each other. Okay. One more time. Come here. No, no, no. That's not how we do it. When somebody calls you and says your kid is an asshole, listen, because they are. That's your job, their job, how we respond to it matters. And Jody, I love that you're giving us this very specific language because even as I'm actively present in this conversation with you, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm so excited for when my husband comes home for work tonight, just what he wants to do the second he gets in the door. But for me to be able to sit down with him and kind of just have this type of conversation. So it's like this shared language, like how is our family as a team going to, to treat each other? So I feel like, again, I've just said the word language three times, but you're giving us this great, thank you for putting these thoughts in two words. So we can communicate them, get on the same page as our families, as our loved ones. So we can do the best job we can of, of loving each other home like that. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. I watch, I loved watching you because I, every time I, you're like, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. You're, you're living it all in your body. I love that your poor husband, husband, <laughs> watch yourself when you come home. I, I feel like you should maybe stay in the car for a few extra minutes today. Just collect yourself. Drop your shoulders because she's coming in hot. Get ready. I love what you said. She's living it out on her body. That is like yeah. a perfect representation of Rachel. Like everything is so true. <laughs> it's so true. She can't hide it. I love it. Okay, Jody. something you said. I love that you call what you do holy work because it really, really is holy work. And in your book, you just talk about helping people get their lid back on where we're, when we're out of control, we're just, we flipped our lid and we don't know how to set it down. We're carrying a bunch of burdens. And someone like you, and I love what you said too, our spouse can be this person as well or whoever, some trusted friend just to help us put it down and walk home. And again, Rachel said it the best. You're just giving us such great language for what we all need to do. Um, But hey, I wanted to talk about, you say you work with police officers a lot. And I know that you work with teachers. And how did you get into that, Jody? Because again, that's very specific of dealing with the... Like helping these type of people put their burdens down. How did you... How did you personally get into this particular topic? Oh my gosh, I love that question. So I don't know. So here, here's the thing. <clears throat> I often say this. So I was raised in a little town in Viking, Alberta, Canada, and uh, very privileged. And um, I had some really cool teachers who, and, and remarkable parents. And 
I often attributed this childhood um, to being able to regulate emotion. And when I think about who who helped me the most, it was like my hockey coach. And, you know, my parents were great and everything, but it, it is like the village with which we surround ourselves by and who that can really, you know, dictate some things. And early in my career, I was like, I really, or in my schooling, I was like, I really want to do this work of like psychology of regulating emotion of like relationship pieces. And I got a job with our national police force, um, sort of as an internship while I was in school. And I fell in love with this group of people who attract so many amazing souls who just want to do the walking. I just want to serve people, want to help them. But organizationally across your country and mine, there's very little infrastructure to support the people doing the walking. There's not a single program identified for first responder spouses across North America. Very little is talked about in terms of psychological injury or trauma in any training academy. Uh, you show me any of them. Uh, I've sat with chiefs of police uh, across your country and mine talking a lot about how we need to do better. You can't defund police. There will always be somebody who needs a walker. And that's ideally what happens in times of biggest distress is you need somebody who could do that place. And, <clears throat> and so I decided I wanted to be a cop. And I applied to get into our national police force and thank the Lord, there was a hiring freeze because uh, I we didn't know each other well, but can you imagine me with a gun? It wouldn't go well. <laughs> and so I also don't take direction well. They'd be like, march. And I'd be like, not a fucking chance. So I'm really glad that that didn't work. But I got into grad school at the same time and I did my master's, my PhD in, um, in the same town, the same university town where our, our national training academy is. And I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, my dissertation was on police marriages. Like what is it, what happens when one of your partners or both of your people do a really um, lid flippy job, a traumatic job where you're serving people like, and this is true for lawyers and physicians and nurses and police officers and 911 operators and tow truck drivers, like anybody in the human services profession, what happens when you come home? And um, it was fascinating to me about the process of trauma and vicarious trauma. And so when I did my residency uh, in the East Coast of Canada, they said, you have to do a rotation with kids. And it, up to this point, I was like, I'm not a fan of children. Uh, I'm still, I'm not, I have three of my own and I'm kind of coming around, but I, I, I much prefer big people. Um, but I, I, I was so lucky and I did a bit of a postdoc at child psychiatry. And that's where I really understood the developmental process of neurologically what happens when our lids flip, when we get things in terror and nobody can do anything with them and what it looks like for kids who have really traumatic experiences in utero or early on and just how much that can mess you up even more than if you have a stable system for longer periods of time, right? And so my first job was on a locked psychiatric inpatient unit for kids. And so for 10 years, I worked at um, one of the center of excellences up here in our province of Alberta, and which is right above Montana, if you want this for geographical experiences. <laughs> and um, this is where kids would go, four to 18, that were the biggest hitters, kickers, biters, ones that would tell you to fuck off. I love those babies. Like these are the kids that people just struggle so much. And they so they would lock them up and we would get them and we would have this question. And this is where we went wrong 20 years ago. We would ask this question all the time. What is wrong with this one? What is wrong with this one? This one got the ADHD and the bipolar and the, you know, uh, learning disabilities and they're hitting and kicking or they're, they're, they're not talking. They've got selective mutism, something, anxiety, depression. You know what we'd never ask? What happened to this one? Because when we change that question from what is wrong with you to what happened to you, Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey wrote a book of the same title, What Happened to You, uh, everything changes. It doesn't mean I condone the behavior or excuse the behavior. You still can't hit and kick and bite and tell people to fuck off. But when I understand why, 
it context is a prerequisite for empathy. And so I finally met a husband because I was waiting for a long time. It's so funny as a woman, I, I got a PhD and I would come home to my little small town and they'd be like, oh, you're so cute. You're a doctor. You got a husband? So I had to get one. So I, I got one. Uh, who is, this is how we met because my husband's brother now lives in South Dakota. Um, and so I married this amazing uh, human. He's got a PhD in animal science, which is basically like, actually ruminant nutrition, which means how do you feed cows? It's exhausting, I'm sure. But anyway, he's a nice guy. So we get married and we have these three babies. We had, we got it so right with the first one uh, that then I got twins at 38 on this five foot frigal Ukrainian chassis. I got twins and I, I'm not even a huge fan of children. So I have three under two. I'm a child psychologist at this point, but I'm like, I much prefer other people's children. And I um then decide that I'm going to have a psychotic break. And Aaron says, my husband says to me, I know what'll help you. Let's move closer to my mother. We show up in uh, old Alberta, Canada, six blocks from my mother-in-law, who I love now, but I'll tell you, it was a go. And we raise our babies in this beautiful little small town. And I start a private practice and I start consulting um, with really tough kids. And then I, you know, I started speaking and then I wrote a book and it became a national bestseller. And then I wrote a couple more and they became national bestsellers. And now I speak globally. And I started a podcast called Everyone Comes From Somewhere. And, uh, and it's going great. And so I don't know, this was not the question at all, but there's the fucking TED Talk. So... <laughs> it was better, better than any of the questions. <laughs> I'm pretty sure your second career is as a comedian because we're <laughs> dying over here. Oh my gosh. I keep clutching Tracy's arm. She's going to have a bruise. Thank you so much to our sponsor this month, Flyboy Donuts. Family and locally owned, Flyboy is collectively one of Tracy's and my number one stops throughout the week because quite frankly, we cannot find an event or a moment that is not made better with a donut. It is so true. And I think all of our kids would agree. Absolutely. And the game changer for me is actually the drive through locations, Rachel, where you can get in and get out without having to get out of your car. And I also love ordering those custom boxes with the names that you can make for birthdays and events. It is amazing. Absolutely. And right now they have made an exclusive offer to the Isn't It Lovely listeners when you use the code LOVELY20 now through January 22nd, 2024. All you have to do is order online at flyboydonuts.com to get 20% off all orders over $20. So now is the perfect time to get those custom orders in. Go to flyboydonuts.com to use the code LOVELY20. Thank you so much, Flyboy. Jody, I have a question for you. I would love to know... Obviously, with the advent of social media, with with TikTok especially, as we've had this destigmatization of mental health and increased mental health awareness, which we all love so much, there's also an increase in certain buzzwords and people self-diagnosing from things they see on social media, whether it's ADHD or narcissism or trauma, as you said. And I understand that we don't want to sort of gatekeep these terms, but I think we also want to be careful with these terms without maybe having a clinical diagnosis. So could you sort of expand upon that? Like, what is your relationship with social media as a tool for people who are grappling with mental health awareness? Oh, I love that question. I think here's part of the issue that, and I would love your take on this as moms. We're, we're the first generation of parents that has access to social media and our children grew up with it and we are often asked you know about kids and social media and their struggles with it we are the first generation of parents that are inundated with so much data that our parents never had to grapple with 
we also have never had this much access to children. If I think about, you know, even for my mom, she would send us to school. And for her to know that something was wrong with me or that something had happened would involve a series of phone calls and people being in the right places at the right time. Yeah. We have zero reprieve from our children, from our parents, from our partners, because at any given second, I took my watch off deliberately because I do stupid shit like this where I get everything's connected to this. So even as we're having a conversation, Team Snap is buzzing me because somebody's got a hockey game tomorrow. My husband is asking where the credit card bill is. Um, my mom is like, did you get this for Christmas? What is that? You know, and we, our ability to stay present with each other is entirely compromised. Our bodies aren't designed for that. And so even more than our children, yeah, because our brains have just been in one generation inundated. If I think about when I left you know, even the high school playground in 2000 and uh, 2000, who the fuck do I think I am? 1992, I, my best friend and I, uh, you know, might have a fight. Okay. And I would then go home on the bus and not have a conversation with her all weekend. Right. Cause there was no, I didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know what I was doing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Now I think about this. I mean, our, our twins, my daughter, our, our son is 13. And I just think about like, as he has a fight with a friend, he will leave in the next couple of years and check his snap map before he even gets home and knows that three of his best friends got together without asking him, that two people posted on social media that he's dumb, that like whatever is happening. Eh? Their brains have no break and our brains have no break. And so then we're like, what is wrong with us? So then we Google everything. We got ADHD. We must have the bipolar. It must be the, um, you know, ODD. Oh my gosh, this one, this one, this one, this one, right? Because what we want is everybody we love to be okay. And when they're not, we want to figure out how to fix it. And what we miss more than any is the simple fact of, of, of acknowledging, of just looking at each other. We don't have to fix it all. When you slow down enough and take a deep breath, the answer is, Not everybody has ADHD. Not everybody is messed up. Not everybody, people should feel bad and sad and scared. That's an emotion is an emotion. But when I ask a parent what they want for their children, most times people say, I just want them to be happy. What's your biggest wish for your partner? I just want them to be happy. But do you know what? Nobody's happy all the time. What do we do for the 75% of the rest of our lives when we're feeling shame or guilt or fat or ugly or rejected or bullied or whatever? I mean, I didn't wake up this morning and was just like, you know what? I'm just so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy with this 47-year-old, no, wait, I'm 48, 48-year-old chassis. I hope that's what she'd look like. And then I rolled over and I looked at my husband. I'm so happy I married this guy. I had a lot of choices in 2009, okay? And I got a farmer that blows his nose like this. <laughs> do you know how many choices I had, Aaron? Do you know how many choices I had? And I chose that one. Am I happy? No! <laughs> Not all the time. But we put this big emphasis on ourselves, and then we get everybody's highlight reel. Before we even take our first steps, okay? If you are dumb like me and you charge your phone by your bed, 
You don't even get out of your bed to pee before you're scrolling somebody else's life, trying to get your email out of the way, trying to get some stuff done. And then you're like, oh, look at her. She already did a workout, bitch. Oh my God, she's drinking a collagen. I got to get some collagen. And then you're like, they got they got family pictures for their Christmas card. And so I'm hitting my husband before we're even at, Aaron, we need family pictures. And he's like, what the fuck is happening right now? Huh? So our cortisol is through the roof before we even take our first steps into the day. And then we start to wonder what happens with anxiety and depression and loneliness and comparative suffering that happens in our bodies that really debilitates our ability to do the thing we were meant to do, which is just to walk each other home, to be kind to our neighbors and our children and to, to seek the best in our partners and to know when to set limits when we don't get what we deserve in this lifetime. And we lose access to the best parts of ourselves when we're comparing ourselves to everybody else. Wow. That's so good. Okay. You have said this several times because it is... I just love this term. And I see that it's on the back of your wall, walking each other home. (laughs) And the name of your book is Feeling Seen. And I think, could you just unpack one of those if you want? Just Feeling Seen. Why is that so important, Jody? And what does that even mean? Yeah, it's so I, that's such a great question because we we worked a really long time to try to figure out the title of the book, and I think that um, I think that the greatest desire of any human at any given time, regardless of age, race, religion, socioeconomic status, or gender identity, is to know that they matter. And an experience of feeling seen is actually one that that tends to happen without words. It is felt by people who can't hear by people who you know can't see, by people who can't even speak. But it is such a deep sense of knowing you matter that requires face-to-face connection, that requires the presence of another human being. And the more disconnected we become, that essence, that that gift, that that reason we're here is going to become so difficult to, to, to continue to give away because it is a skill. Huh? You, you have to have experienced it. Just like how to apologize. Just like you're not born with empathy. You have to experience it in order to give it away, which is why, you know, emotional regulation or even um, giving away empathy, it's, it's a privilege. You can't give away something you've never received. And so when we have the ability to give it to our children or our children's teachers, and I mean, to, to answer the question that I think you asked like 50 minutes ago was like, why teachers and police officers? Because they don't seem like they fit. So true. If I could have my time in this world, I would give as much resources and lobby the government for as much funding for teachers and police officers that I possibly could, because they are two of the most profound walkers in terms of professions on this planet. Teachers spend more waking hours with our children than primary caregivers do in the run of school week. And in your country, even more than mine, they are grossly, grossly underpaid. You cannot rise if you're unacknowledged. You cannot serve well if you have to work three jobs and and show up for my child who is supposed to be having meltdowns and being assholery-ish and bullying. You cannot be physically present to walk him through hard things if you've had to work two jobs and you're trying to make ends meet for your own babies while you're just doing your job of serving mine. (laughs) If I compensate you beautifully, if I remind you well in your communities how much you matter, you will skate through walls for my babies. 
This isn't a question of competence or ability. When you are acknowledged, you rise. And one of my favorite hockey coaches said this, you should see how fast I can get a kid to skate when I know the name of their dog. When a teacher feels seen and appreciated, there's nothing they won't do. Same is true for police officers. I see teachers as the emotional regulating linchpin for our kids. I see police officers as the emotional regulating um, linchpin for the most marginalized among us. They are called to people who are suffering the most. And remember, you can't give away something you've never received. So people who get in domestic violence situation, not always, who struggle the most with emotional regulation tend to struggle with poverty, tend to uh, have not been given very much in this world. And what they need is a regulating other in a time of distress. And if you are looked after well and regulated well and reminded that your work is holy, you will step into those scenes of death notifications and MBAs and um, rapes and shootings with a sense of emotional regulation that says, come here, uh, 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 enough. I can keep you safe if I need to, but my biggest job is to get you through this hard thing. And when we can remind them of that, they will continue to serve. When we look after their families, they will have somebody they can come home to so they can continue to do that job of walking people through hard things. Instead of changing the adage from we're here just to teach kids lesson or get people back on the straight and narrow or punish the bad guys. Some of my favorite work is stuff that I've done in prisons. And when you sit with somebody who has done the very best, actually, I'll give you an example of it. So some of my favorite work is with child and family services. Okay. So we have dads that get their kids apprehended and in this stupid system, yours is dumb as dumb as ours. We, um, you know, take kids away from people who we don't think are competent enough to care for their children, which is often very true. And in an effort to, to demonstrate whether they're good enough or not, we observe them. So we bring them into a room, watch them play with their kids, give them toys that they've never seen, and we make a decision about whether they're fit to be parents or not. Stupid. If you put me in a room with my kids and a bunch of toys that neither of us had seen, I wouldn't do well either. And one of the examples, I think I read about this in Kids These Days, but I, I had this dad once that changed my life. And so they asked me if I would come and do an observation of a parent because they're going to apprehend his kid or go PGO, which means the permanent guardianship is going to be taken away from this dad who has a prison record and, um, you know, is assholery-ish on paper. And so they're like, listen, we got one more chance to do this visit. If you could just like observe it and like give us a report, like we're pretty sure this dad's going to fuck it up because he's fucked it up three times repeatedly. And I was like, oh, okay, well, no pressure, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, and they said his only job is to show up on time. Please mark it down if he doesn't. And uh, he needs to bring a healthy snack for his kid. I'm like, okay, no problem. So I call this this dad ahead of time. Doesn't answer. Uh, we set up the the email through his parole officer or the, the time to meet. And it's at 10 o'clock, let's say, on a Wednesday. And so I have his babe there who's eight. Uh, and dad doesn't show. So this kid is uh, remarkably sad. And we talk through it and, you know, how, you know, where dad's at and what he loves about him. And, and I say, you know what, can we try this one more time. I'm going to try to get a hold of dad and see if I can let him know that I'm, I'm kind of excited to meet him too. And so the worker's like, okay, fine. One more time. And the kid's like, okay, yep. So I called dad and I said, listen, my name is Jody. Uh, I know you don't even know who I am and it does must not feel fair for me to sit and watch you and your kid play, but I know your boy really wants to see you. And I'd really love to meet you too. Do you think you can, uh, we can try this one more time Wednesday at 10 30. And he's like, fine. What's your name? Judy. I said, yep. Sure. And um, so me and the babe are sitting there waiting. He's 15 minutes late, which is already, I mean, he should not be allowed to visit. 
Uh, and so I'm preparing the, this babe to, you know, sort of navigate this process. And um, I hear this like, blah, 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 blah. And this like small town side road. And I look outside and there's this 18 wheel truck pulling up. huh? And so this dad jumps out. And so I go out to meet him and he's carrying a bag of McDonald's. And he said, oh, are you Jody? I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Jody. And he said, um, oh, I, I'm sorry I'm late. I, 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 my, my, I had to bring my work truck. My truck broke down. I knew, fuck. I'm like, can I still meet? I'm like, come here. Did you bring a healthy snack? And he said, oh, I didn't have time. Uh, I said, D- please tell me there's a cheeseburger in there. And he said, yeah. I said, your son was just telling me it's your favorite snack to eat together. You guys both love cheeseburgers, hey? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we do. And I said, you know your boy, dad. I'm so glad you're here. Come here. Can I give you a hug? Do you mind? And he's like, uh, okay. So he comes in for a hug and I mean, he smells very bad. And so I'm doing my very best. I'm, I give him a hug. And I'm like, let's go see your boy. So we go and they, they play, uh, they eat the cheeseburgers. Dad fucks it up a few times. We have to have a smoke break. We come back in. Um, I said, listen, fellas, I'd love to do this again next Wednesday. Are you guys, you guys up for it? And they're like, yeah, okay. So this little boy walks out and I come back in and his dad looks like he's probably eight himself sitting on this couch. And I come over and I sit beside him and grab his hand and he starts to cry. He said, nobody ever showed me how to do that. I said, dad, you did amazing. I can see how much he loves you. And I had to, uh, he never missed another visit. Uh, We we had uh, uh, five more weeks of that. And then I stood in a court of law and said that um, he's not fit to raise his baby by himself because he doesn't have the skills. And dad and I talked about that. And uh, it was heartbreaking. But I did say to the the judge, he does need to see his boy because uh, he doesn't know uh, how to do it maybe the way that everybody expects him to. But I'll tell you, he's crazy about him. And uh, so, of course, I think what is so interesting in this process is that um, you can't tell somebody how to be great. You have to show them. Mm -hmm. You can't tell somebody um, how to be kind or better or anti-racist. You have to show them. And I think those in positions of emotional regulation, it's such a privilege. And when we use that for good, I, I've assessed and treated over a thousand kids in, in my country and I've never, not one time met a bad kid, not one time. I've met a lot of emotionally regulated kids, a lot of kids who told that, you know, they're pieces of shit or they don't matter, or, you know, they're bullies and assholes or whatever the deal is. Uh, I've sat with lots of parents who, uh, you know, couldn't do better and be better and should do better. Uh, but I've never met a single one that, you know, intended to be where they were, you know? And, and I think sometimes it's that ability to, um, give the benefit of the doubt in this season where we are so dysregulated and and lonely and chippy. And, you know, we're, we're so, um, this idea of burnout for me is really so prominent these days because when we're emotionally exhausted, we lose access to compassion. Um, it's just like when a toddler misses a couple naps, right? When they, when they've had some naps, they're amazing humans. And then when they miss a couple, they're like assholery-ish. Yeah. And we've missed a lot of naps, um, as big people, uh, particularly through COVID. Our shoulders have been up. Um, we've noticed this globally in terms of things like anxiety and depression and in war, um, We've never been this judgmental in this way. And when we lose compassion for people, um, the next step is futility, which is really like, what's the point? 
Mm-hmm. How, how are we ever going to make a fucking difference? Like, you know, there's no resources, there's no money. The haves have so much, the have nots have not, you know what, do they even care? They're not even trying. We give them jobs and handouts and blah, blah, blah. it becomes like this. Huh? And part of the issue I think really is around how do we drop our shoulders and recognize that we all started as humans in the exact same place. Your babies and my babies, regardless of age, race, religion, socioeconomic status, gender identity, uh, all started in the exact same place, which is listening to the heartbeats of our mamas. And this sense of emotional regulation is in our bones, all of us. Bump, 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 bump. And in times of distress, what we just need is somebody to sit with us in that regulated way to say, okay, okay, okay. Here's what's amazing about you. And, you know, Brene Brown talks about this. You know, people are hard to hate close up. It doesn't mean that, you know, we condone or support or believe or that, you know, you can be an asshole and get away with it. No, no, da, 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 da. But people are hard to hate close up. And when we have so many opportunities to look away, we stop seeing. And so the answer to, to so much of that is, is how do we just on purpose do more looking? And when people feel seen, when they are, when we truly see them, they will rise. And that, that's all we need. That's all we need to create those in the people we have the most access to, our children, our nieces, our nephews, the teams we coach, uh, the, the drop-offs and pickups that we get to see kids with and buy and from. Um, I think our biggest investment will be being as kind as we possibly can to the people that we're raising so that they can then serve uh, the world as they grow up. There's a TED Talk for you that had nothing to do with the fucking question that you asked. Oh, so. and you answered the question beautifully. And <laughs> there are a few TED Talks in this episode. <laughs> So great. And what I love about you, Jody, you're hilarious and so full of knowledge. And just the language that you're giving Rachel and I, and I know our listeners, is just absolutely powerful and spectacular. And the name of your book is Feeling Seen. And the name of your podcast is Everybody Comes From Somewhere. So we will link all of this in the show notes. Uh, like, unbelievable. unbelievable. What do you need to be on, right? We're going to get you on the pod. Everyone comes from somewhere. Yeah, done. Nothing more. And I just, again, and Trace said this really beautifully, Jody. but just thank you so much. Sometimes there's just so much, like you said earlier, there's so much information out there and it is so overwhelming, but I feel that you have broken it down for us Mm -hmm. so beautifully today. You've made it practical. The things that we've laughed about, there is gravitas to these situations, but you've given us permission to also laugh about how completely ridiculous some of it is too. It's ridiculous that we have all this access to each other. Let's laugh about it. Let's release that, release the negative of energy and figure out together how, like you said, we're going to walk each other home. How are we going to help each other out in this? So thank you for every single gem that has been uttered in this beautiful conversation. We want to honor your time, but we end every show, Jody, by talking about something that we're loving that week. So um, it could be a book, a show, a podcast. What are you loving this week? Okay. This is going to be the cheesiest thing on the planet. Are you ready for what I'm loving this week? We're ready, girl. Give it to us. Yes. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. I can't. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I love it. I, it's like international. Like this is going into Canada. The love for this. Oh, <laughs> oh. And I am mostly fascinated, less so by him than I am by her. The badassery and the brilliant vulnerability of this book. I went to, um, you know how she, I don't know if you, you can go to the heiress tour as a movie. Mm-hmm. So my daughter is very obsessed. And I had no idea until now, like now I can sing every song that was, but I went to the movie deliberately by myself. And you, 
she had, I was in there just like, I'm the man, I'll be the man. <laughs> like, I, honest to God, I feel like Tay and I could just figure out the ways of the world. And I'm, 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 I'm so fascinated by the expectation that we have of people, the stories that we tell of people, um, and how, as one woman, her and Beyonce together, politically and economically, can change countries. What is happening? What is happening? It's really how is that happening? So that that that's I'm just I'm 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 amazed. I'm amazed at how women can can be powerful in this way. I'm I'm interested in um, how you rewrite the script and the story and. Um, why shouldn't you go for your dreams? Somebody's going to have to play that role. So fucking do it. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be Taylor Swift. That's actually basically how it goes. You two together would be a freaking powerhouse. Come on yourself. Change countries. You guys would change the world. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. What are you guys excited about? What's happening? Rachel, what are you loving? I see you. I see you with your notes. She's got notes, Jody. She's got notes. Love a good note, girl. <laughs> I believe that about you. I feel like you are the best organizer of all time. Jody, how do you you have seen her? And this is over Zoom, everybody. You have seen Rachel from like like Jody. when we when you answered the phone. <laughs> wow, she is the best organizer. Okay, go Thank ahead. You. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Love Jody. Oh. Wait, actually, I, we're we're on Zoom right now. I'm actually. I have to say, I'm loving Jody's eyelashes right now. Yeah, and I want to ask amazing. you about that. I'm like, these are amazing. Are <laughs> they, they are extensions? amazing? Can we talk off mic? I need them. They're gorgeous. Um. Okay. I have a podcast, you guys, and this feels very distinctly American, but it's called "Who Killed JFK." It's on iHeartRadio. True Crime. It, sorry, True Crime, yeah. and uh, it's hosted by Rob Reiner and Soledad O'Brien. Oh. And this is something that, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff about the assassination of JFK for a long time. There's a Pruder film, lots of different conspiracy theories, but this one actually had new information in it that and I for sure was not aware of. And each episode is like a tight 30 minutes and they do a great job with the pacing and just revealing information that is kind of new from like the last couple of years. I find it endlessly fascinating and just, again, always re-examining history mm. and the perspective and the representation. And mm. it has been and a delight to just kind of feed that little history nerd part of my brain that loves stuff like this. So it's called that. Who Killed JFK and just a little bit of a fresh examination. So, oh my gosh. Okay, switching gears a little bit. I am loving this girl on Instagram. Her name is House and Habit. Her name, I think her name is Jessica. She is doing, she's usually just reports like courtroom dramas and she's a journalist, but she's a citizen journalist. She's not owned by anybody, which is so amazing in this country because media is owned, as we all know. Um, but she's just doing her own thing. And she asked if we would want political coverage. And I said, no, I was like, I don't want, and she has got like a million followers. So she's clearly not listening to Tracy Kirby and Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But I was like, oh, she be. I freaking hate political coverage, but she is doing an unbelievable job. She's going to all these events and it's just, she makes it funny. She makes it pop culture. She makes it, um, I don't know, just from her perspective. Yeah. And again, I just love that she's not bot. It's not like lobbyist, you know, it's just like yeah. her perspective and just changing the narrative about politics. It's been so fun to watch. And oh. he follows around RFK Jr. And that has been really interesting. It's just, there's a lot of just that I would not typically know of these candidates. So it's just been really fun. 
I am just, I want to like check out for the next year because of political coverage, but the way that she's doing it is actually really admirable as a journalist. So, oh, yeah, you'll love it, Jody. She's hilarious, like so funny. House and Habit. House and Habit. Jody, we just adore you. Thank you with all of our hearts for joining us today and for giving us just this treasure of a conversation. You gave us. This is such a gift to us. Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of Isn't It Lovely? If you love what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe by clicking on our show in your favorite podcast app and following the prompts. You can download all of our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at www.isitnotlovely.com. And we are also on Instagram and our handle is Is It Not Lovely Podcast. Keep looking for the lovely in all things. Thanks for listening.